0: Rather short order, we shall consider a number of subjects, first of all, foreign languages. In one particular state, the state schools give as a standard for language instruction the following statement, My I quote, Learning a foreign language at the elementary school level contributes significantly to the development of the pupil's potential talents and interests. Through broadening concepts of language and increasing the ability to communicate, it helps to create a better appreciation of life in other cultural and linguistic environments, enabling the learner to participate more effectively in a modern democratic society Which maintains extensive political, economic, and cultural relationships with people of many languages and cultures. Unquote. Now, this statement is a good expression of the humanistic approach. The focal point, of course, is man and society. Foreign languages are presented as an asset. To the individual. In spite of this statement, which characterizes quite well the philosophy of foreign languages among status educators, there has been in the past 40 and 50 years a very marked decline in foreign language study at all levels elementary, secondary, and higher. The reason for this has been the change in humanism. Earlier we had classical humanism. Classical humanism was essentially past-oriented. As against Christianity, it held aloft the ideal of Greek humanism. It therefore looked to the past. It regarded the humanistic accomplishments of the past as ideal. When, in art, humanism triumphed, you had a neoclassical impulse. However, beginning with the Romantic movement, you progressively had the birth of another kind of humanism. The newer humanism that began with Romanticism still had the classical orientation to a considerable degree. All you have to do is to look at Keats and Shelley and see how they got all choked up over a Grecian urn or something like that. It represented, you see, something comparable to what Scripture does to us. It is a holy relic of man's humanist past untainted by Christianity. However, the Romantic movement led progressively to the present existential humanism, which is present-oriented. The conflict in statist education between the older and more conservative educators and the newer and more radical ones is a family quarrel among humanists. On the one hand, those whose humanism is classical, on the other hand, those whose humanism is existential. We belong to neither category. In terms, of course, of the newer existential humanism, an increasing number of students have said in the modern era, I don't need a foreign language. Strictly speaking, they're right. There is very little that we really need. How do we as Christians justify foreign languages? Do we justify Latin, for example, because it is important to English? Well, Anglo-Saxon is important to English, too. Humanistic rationales usually take several approaches. First, they say certain languages are basic to the life of culture. This is the classical approach. Second, others say they have a utility to our present life and culture. This is the existential approach. As a result, humanism normally has stressed languages that are important to the mode or form of humanism current. Thus, the languages that have usually been taught are those important either to classical or existential humanism. Thus, classical Greek, Latin, French, German. Now, of course, the interest in Russian and also in Chinese. However, it is important for us, as we approach the subject of languages, to think religiously as Christians. First of all, we must remember that with the Reformation, language study gained a great impetus, but very properly it was an impetus towards the study of biblical languages, Koine Greek and Hebrew. It also meant the study of Latin because there is a tremendous body of literature from the early centuries. the Middle Ages that is in Latin. Now while it is not essential for a Christian to know the Biblical languages, it is highly desirable, and there will be a growth in the comprehension of preaching, and of Christian writing, as well as a steady development in the level thereof if the Christian school begins to teach biblical languages. I'm very happy to report that in a number of places across country, Christian schools which have been in existence for some time are beginning to consider seriously introducing biblical languages into their curriculum. New schools are working towards that end so that within five or ten years they do hope to get into such instruction. This will, of course, have a major impact on the life of the church. It will enable those who are in the pew. To enhance their comprehension of biblical teaching and preaching, because there is no question that while it is not necessary, it is most helpful. To cite one example, even though our language, as a result of several centuries before any translation into English was made of a reshaping of our language of Christian faith and life we still are poor at certain points and miss the nuances of scripture because our language is limited I say this with full recognition of the fact of the extent to which our language and western European languages have been reshaped by the Bible. In fact, every language, as I made clear the other day, that what the translators work with is reshaped, thinking is redirected, so that the future development of those native languages will be determined to a great extent by Scripture. But we have in English one word for love, When a Greek has three. Eros, for erotic or sensual love. philos for human, normal, brotherly love. And agape, for what is really divine, sovereign grace and the love of God, which is entirely grace. Now, we don't catch those nuances in our English readings. In fact, we miss entirely the point of our Lord's questioning of Peter in the last chapter of John when He says, "Simon, son of John, lovest thou me?" The first time He says, using his dative, "Lovest thou me more than these?" because Simon had boasted. But if all others betrayed Christ, he would not. Then he says, Lovest thou me, not more than me, but with a god face? Simon instead answers, saying, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. Very old. It's an ordinary human, frail, failing, faulty love. The third time he says, Lovest thou me, and he uses do you love me even in the prayer? Even with a mother. And that time, Peter was hurt. Well, we miss the subtlety there because we don't know the language. And I do believe that our children will be blessed and enriched as we begin to teach biblical languages. I do believe this will be one of the results of the growth of Christian schooling. We will see the importance of teaching the languages of Scripture. I do not ind- uh, believe this is going to come about overnight. The Christian school movement is still a child. But I do believe that in the next fifty years we're going to see remarkable things. Then. Second, the Scripture tells us very clearly in Genesis one twenty six to twenty eight that God created man to exercise dominion and to subdue the earth. And again in Matthew 28, 18, 20, the disciples of our Lord are told to go into all the world. Make disciples of all nations, teaching them all things that I have commanded you. So that the people of God have a tremendous responsibility to all the world. And, basically, to God. To the triune God. To bring every area of life and thought into captivity to Jesus Christ. As a result, it is important for Christians to be number one, to excel all others, to be able to have mastery in various languages so that they can better manifest their kingship in Christ, their priesthood in Christ, their role as prophets in Christ. I believe that we are going to see, in the not-too-distant future, a great deal more in the way of foreign trade and travel back and forth commercially. I believe that it is going to become more and more necessary for people as they do business to be able to do it with a command of more languages than one. At present, we in the United States are the weakest in the world in this respect. In California, we do see regularly quite a variety of speakers in all parts of the world. Now, if I may for a moment I can see with the approval of the Californians present, do a little boasting about California. In terms of size and uh, agricultural, industrial, and natural resources, California, if it were an independent country, would be the seventh most powerful country in the world. One-fourth of all the food consumed by the United States is grown in California. In fact, the rice farmers of the Orient are now finding themselves in the midst of perhaps uh, uh, permanent depression because they cannot compete with the rice growers of California. North of Sacramento, in California, the rice is sown by airplanes and huge rice paddies. And there's simply no competing with that anywhere in the Orient. Well, if you live in any of the major urban centers, or you are at any of the major airports in California, you hear just about every language under the sun. In fact, I was in one motel recently, and i had made a reservation some time before. It was a large motel, and I was one of about three or four people in the motel who didn't speak Japanese. Because the entire place had been taken over by a large contingent of Japanese engineers. And the thing that impressed me was that they all spoke such excellent English. The number of California businessmen who go to Japan and who go to Europe is legion. The number of them who can speak any of the languages is very limited. So there is a real handicap there. And... One of the things that I've learned from some of these people is that uh, very quickly... Even with their English, they feel like slobs. Why? Because their English is poor, very often as compared with the English, however accented, of Orientals and Europeans. One of the things that you learn as you learn a foreign language is a great deal about grammatical structure that you take for granted with your English and as a result, you relearn your own language as you learn a foreign language. Many of these American businessmen, as they go abroad, find themselves embarrassed because their language is poor by comparison insofar as it concerns construction and grammar. Now, since we as Christians are called to be kings, priests, and prophets in Christ, and called to be a people exercising dominion over the earth in the Lord's name, bringing every area of life and thought into captivity to Christ, it behooves us especially to be able to command that most basic and elementary of all tools, Language. And then third, as when we were dealing with grammar and composition, I pointed out that language should be more important to us and all other peoples. Because as Christians, language is the means whereby God reveals his purpose, his word to us. This is why I feel that bad language, whether it is profanity or the improper use of English, is especially ugly coming from a Christian. We who are the people of God should excel all others in our respect for language. It is this which separates us from animals in part. It is this which gives us the ability to pray to God and to hear God speak to us. Language, therefore, is something that we should respect. Therefore, for us to use language lightly is, in particular, a very serious offense. As I said, I'm going to go through several subjects rather quickly in these morning hours, so I'll stop now for any questions on language before we proceed. Yes. Yes. Which language would I teach first, uh, and at what level? I think Greek would be the one to begin with, perhaps, but I would not venture to say at what grade level for this reason. I believe ultimately we will be able to start teaching it in the lower elementary grades. But that will come with time as we step up instruction. I believe that ten years from now we will be teaching more in the first grade than we are now. I believe that every ten, fifteen years our textbooks are going to be stepped up in the level of instruction they require. Right now, in many Cases, parents, and sometimes teachers are objecting that the textbooks require too much. But what they're going to find is that the children can meet those requirements and even more. In connection with that, I know of an amusing example where in one Christian school where now the Pastor no longer will, will hire anyone who's had any state uh, teacher's training courses, because he says they are so full of ideas about what can't be done at a certain age level that it's hard to get them to teach. In one case, he hired a young man out of the business world and gave him second grade boys and just experimentally shoved a lot of material on him from much higher levels and told him this is what he was to teach the young man didn't know it couldn't be done and he did it any other questions? yes yeah. I think you can use a combination of both, because you do want them to have a grammatical construction. The value of that, as it helps them to understand English alone, is tremendous. But this doesn't mean that you concentrate on that to the exclusion of their ability to speak. Yes. No, I don't see any, unless... uh, That depends on you now. Some don't believe in taking anything from the state school. Others uh, see objections to it. Others learn better working on their own, but some of us are not that disciplined. I would say the sooner you get with it, the better, because the older we get, the more difficult it becomes. Yes. Coin A, yes. I specified that earlier. No. No, that is purely a written language. Right, as far as any contemporary use is concerned. Yes. Yes.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: the question is are Greek studies on the graduate level unfolding uh, more things about our knowledge of the word of God Uh, yes they are because uh, for one thing As some of the scholars in Greek and Hebrew deal with uh, cognate tongues, as they deal with archaeological evidence, they find from uh, inscriptions and all, parallel usages of the particular word, which throws a new light on the meaning and opens up a new facet of the meaning of the word. So, little by little, here and there, a fresh light is being thrown on a particular uh, word and its meaning. I mentioned to some of you the other day, uh, yesterday, uh, DJ Wiseman, a few years ago, reported on uh, various tablets that had been discovered that used in... Syrian and other languages, essentially the same word as we have translated from the Hebrew into English in Genesis as "generations." These are the generations of, and he found that it meant these are the family records of, which means that what we have these are the family records of Adam, these are the family records of Seth, so that you have in Genesis the family records of the patriarchs, as they themselves wrote them. Now, that's the kind of thing that turns up as a result of research. Yes. Well, uh, the question, if I understand you correctly, is where do you stick it into the curriculum? Yes. Well, it's being done uh, in a number of cases. I know uh, some schools that have started teaching German in kindergarten, and they start Latin in the fifth grade. Then they go into other languages in high school, and they have been able to work it in. Yes.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, it can be done.
0: One of the things that happens when a school, Christian school, introduces uh, language study at an early level is that it's a tremendous advertising point. You find that a great many parents are more impressed by that than a, a number of other things. I neglected to make an announcement yesterday. I mentioned two days ago E. F. Hill's book, *The King James Version Defended*. I can give you the address for that now. Edward F. Hills, the King James Version Defended. Order it from the Christian Research Press. Christian Research Press. P.O. Box 2013. P.O. Box two oh one three Des Moines, capital BES, capital MOINES, Iowa, five oh three one oh, and the price per copy is three fifty. I think you'll find it most rewarding reading. Are there any other questions? Now I want to take a few moments to go briefly into a subject which I think is important for us to be aware of because it deals with a problem that we're all vaguely aware of, but uh, have not given much attention to. And that is the question of sexual differences among our children. After all, they do come male and female. And there are differences. These differences affect their learning ability. It is important for us to be aware of the fact of differences because they are God-given. We live, unfortunately, in an age which stresses equality. Now, I do not, let me make it clear, believe in equality or inequality. I believe both terms are totally inappropriate for people. Why? The modern words... Equality and inequality are mathematical terms. They come out of 17th century mathematics. They deal with abstractions. As a result, when they are applied to the human scene, they inevitably and invariably distort the concept in mathematics is a very important and thoroughly valid one. If you are dealing with lumber, or if you are dealing with tons or pounds of a certain produce, the equal sign is necessary. You have to deal in terms of the equation, because you are dealing with abstractions, and it's the only way to comprehend what you have. But can you say that two Englishmen are equal to two Nigerians? Well, the two Englishmen can be hoodlums. The two Nigerians can be Christians. Their aptitudes and abilities can vary. Can you say that two trees are equal to two clouds? You see, you're not dealing with abstractions when you take it out of the level of abstract, cut, measured, weighed things. The term equality, as well as the term inequality, have given rise to all kinds of social conflicts in the modern world. And you have people passionately dedicated to defending one or the other idea without realizing they're talking about nonsense. They are talking about an abstraction, about something that doesn't exist. you not only have differences of aptitude, but you have the fact of grace in human lives. And how can you measure that? How can you apply the term equality and inequality to such things as grace or musical ability or courteousness? Possibility. This is why there is no solution to our contemporary problems until we drop the whole framework of the problem and begin to think in different terms, in Christian terms. However, because we have so long thought in terms of the idea of equality, we have applied it across the board to one area of life after another. So you have the demand for equality of the sexes. They're not the same. And equality of the races, they're not the same. Different peoples and different races, the two sexes, have varying aptitudes. And within a race, different people will have different aptitudes so that they are not equatable. However, our education proceeds on the basis that Boys and girls are the same. As a matter of fact, across the country, it is being pushed to the point of having co-educational physical education classes now. Do you have that in your area yet? Yes. Well, it's the big thing now, co-educational physical education classes. Well, in some areas, they're just plain embarrassed and frustrated. So, it's a mess. Whatever it is, it's a hopeless mess, and there is no solution to it. Now, the word equal does appear in the Bible, but it has a totally different meaning. What it means is that God has no respect of persons. I'm going to read to you now a a statement by Walter B. Dolan in Sex Makes the Difference, The Case Against Radical Women's Rift, in which he defines sex. First of all, what is sex? The word sex in English comes from a Latin word, sequai, which means to cut or divide. And this usage probably originated from the biblical rendition of the Genesis of mankind, Genesis 2:21, following. In this account, the first woman was made from the side of man. She was taken from him or divided from him. Science also tells us that there is a division or differences between males and females. The words such indicates the division of mankind or a separation of mankind. There are elements or characteristics that separate females from males. Sex has to do with those differences. Sex is difference, not likeness. Although males and females are alike in some ways, both have two arms, they are also unlike in some ways. The things in which they differ is the division between them. Many times, the male and female differences complement each other. Although there is a sexual division in mankind, each complements the other, and both together make up something which should be regarded as a complete functional unit. Now, humanism, of course, both denies the difference and the complementary aspect. And this is why the humanists are in trouble. They're not going to solve the problem. They have created problems by their false category of thinking. If you begin with a false presupposition, you are never going to solve a problem. You will only create more problems and greater problems. Now I'm going to go into some of the aspects of the differences between male and female. Incidentally, most of the standard testing in the schools today is so designed so that it will not manifest sexual and racial differences. Differing races have higher aptitudes on the average and others. Some will excel in one area, and others will excel in another area. The same is true of boys and girls. But the tests are so designed that they will by and large test neutral areas as far as possible. Now this may come as a shock to males here, some of you who are married and have been married long enough may have suspected it but women on the whole are smarter than men they very definitely test out uh, better in every area except two Women either are the same as or far ahead as men. The two areas in which men test out better now first aggression or in biblical terms we would say dominion the simple aspect of it would be aggression and abstract thinking. A woman's thinking is concrete, personal, particular. A man's thinking tends to be abstract. This is why he can get lost in the crowd, and his feet won't be really on the ground in his thinking. In fact, he'll try to be objective and impersonal and abstract in his thinking, and sometimes... It's nonsensical. This is one reason why, by the way, men make poor bachelors. Well, they tend to walk a man. <clears throat> but uh, a single woman is not walked because her thinking is personal. It is, is not in the clouds, it's not upset. Now. Consider the difference this makes. Because boys have this urge to dominion, they are more self-assertive. They are less ready to please the teacher. They're standoffish. They want to be independent and critical. Those not having, by and large, except as a simple aspect of the head being, this same urge to dominion, are much readier to please the teacher. This is why the teacher's set is almost always a girl, or several girls. The girls see nothing wrong with pleasing the teachers. They're very happy to please him. It delights them to be able to please him. Or to bring him a peach. <laughs> And this is why teachers like girls in their class. They're so much more wonderful to have around. A teacher likes to be pleased. Now this makes a difference in a class. The boys tend to hang back and feel that being a good student is uh, sissy stuff. That's for the girls. And this is a problem that you have to overcome with boys. This is why I believe someday there are one or two cases where this is already being done, but in most schools it's going to take some years before financially it can be done. There are separate classes for boys and girls. When you do have that, the boys compete with each other much more readily. They don't compete with girls as readily. Because they're going to be shown up by the girls, you see, and they know that unconsciously. And they hate the idea. Nothing's more horrible for a man or a boy than to be beaten by a girl or to be corrupted by his wife. Not that they don't need it. As a result, It is important as a teacher to be aware of this fact because we do need the boys they do have a god-ordained place in society to exercise dominion to provide leadership and the sad fact is that today when more and more jobs require Skills and leadership ability. There's less space for unskilled labor. Men are, by and large, more poorly trained and less capable of exercising leadership. The Christian school, therefore, must be aware of this problem, and that's why I have uh, cited it. I do believe it is important for us to give consideration to, even though we may not have, in the foreseeable future, any way of coming up with an ideal solution. But awareness of a problem is sometimes almost half the solution. I may digress for a moment. I'd like to read something further. Gohan says, he's a man, about the biological weakness of man as compared to women. He says, and I quote, males have greater quantities of biological defects than females. A. More males are colorblind. B. More males are born stillborn. C. Male infants have higher rates of mortality and morbidity. D. Males are more susceptible to many diseases. E. Males grow and mature physically slower than females. F. Among males there are more learning and behavior disorders. D. A higher percentage of males are mentally defective. And H. Males develop their verbal abilities later than females. These biological defects are felt by many to have something to do with males, XY chromosomes, and other genetic and hormonal factors." The girls didn't realize what a sorry meant we males were. Now maybe you'll be kinder to us. Of course, As we deal with these facts of difference we must recognize that they are God ordained. And therefore we are to use these differences in terms of God's purpose for us. After all Saint Paul says in first Corinthians four seven, for he maketh thee to differ from another. And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory, as if thou hadst not received it? The Christian school, you see, has a function other than merely to transmit information. Its purpose is to bring up young men and women into the service of Christ their Lord and Savior. This requires dealing with the realities of what male and female are, A recognizing that God wants us to recognize the differences, their complementary factors, and their functions in terms of his cause. Are there any questions about this? Yes. Yes. The word equal in the Declaration of Independence does reflect the 17th century kind of thinking rather than biblical thinking. However, as they used it, they meant equal with respect to opportunities. They didn't apply as radically as the present, but it had the germ of the present interpretation in it. The usage there was not biblical, basically. Yes. Would you say that again? Good question, and perhaps some of you can come up with some ideas. Uh, so be thinking while I give one preliminary answer. The question, if you did not hear it, is because there are differences, what teaching methods should be used to enable us to compensate for that difference and to enable us to draw out, for example, the boys in a situation. Well, first of all, you will very commonly find in a classroom when you ask the question and the hands go up, the first hands up usually are the hands of girls. Isn't that usually to see? They're quicker mentally, for one thing, usually. They're more anxious to see. The boy may know the answer, And he'll put his hand up like that, if he does. So, one thing you can do is to not ask for hands or say, let's have one of the boys answer that question before you ask it. Yes. Yes, the question is with regard to competitiveness. Uh, but let's hold that for a moment and see if anyone else has any suggestions. Yes. Why don't you come up here, each of you do have ideas, so everyone can hear you. Please. I've
1: had my, uh, my birth and birth and birth and birth, and birth. I've never been doing that. That you have, uh, the boys to the boys the other to The I think, would be Very
0: good suggestion. Someone else have an idea, please, because this will be helpful. Anyone else have a suggestion? If you're afraid to come up here, then stand up and say it from there, and I'll repeat it. <laughs> Although he says he makes kids come up to the front of the car and shouldn't be scared to go out. Yes. Very good. I think that's
1: excellent.
0: Yes. Yes, very good. They do need to see more men exercising leadership. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Very good. Any other suggestions? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yes, men must see their role in leadership. Yes. Any
1: other?
0: Yes. Yes. Is there any merit in having an all-boys school and an all-girls school? I don't think so. I think it. I, I think the ideal situation would be for both to be in one school building and have separate classes. Yes. First grade boys class and first grade girls class. As I say, I have seen that and it works beautifully. The boys then become uh, well you, one of the first things that happened with that, uh, kind of a situation in one case that I know of was that more boys began to make the honor roll. When they were competing against boys, they were much readier to compete. Yes. Most of the way through grade and high school, girls tend to excel. It's only when the boy begins to think of his life work and doesn't look around at uh, who else is in the class. And in a college atmosphere, there isn't the same uh, focus on students, you see. It's on the professor and his lecturer then the boy will come into his own, usually, on the college level. But too often, by the time he reaches the college or the university, uh, his unwillingness to compete does take a toll on his learning ability. No, because uh, I think it helps the situation actually when you have competitive sports the boy tends to figure that uh well this is my realm uh sports. studying is for girls books are for girls so it tends to accentuate an already uh serious problem the boy has to see studying as basic to the life right of a man
1: yeah
0: <laughs> On the college level you see there is this problem on the college level the boy is thinking about his wife's work and a job and uh, he's got to have a grade maybe graduate school is also in prospect the girl very often is uh, thinking about uh, whom can she marry so her focus is not as strongly on the book at that point yes
1: Mm -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. did you all hear that and repeat it because some didn't and i think that's extremely important because it's i think uh a good demonstration of just what we've been doing uh, two years ago in our school, in the eighth grade, we were
1: offering uh, home economics and some other courses for the girls and then some courses for the boys. We had the class schedule. We separated the boys and girls for the whole year. and They didn't go to any class. And uh, not only did they achieve uh, higher grades, but the first thing we noticed was that the discipline problems that we normally have uh, some of them completely disappeared. and
0: we have a discipline in the that year. Uh, let me add one thing, one of the problems you see with boys, where you have, uh, co-educational classes, is that they're showing off for the girls, and a lot of your discipline problems stems from that tendency, uh, because males are show-off, yes. yes I really don't believe that girl athletics uh, are that important or that wise Uh, some of the types of sports if a doctor were here and he could talk say more about it do tend to have an unhappy effect on uh the position of the uterus in the girl may do create problems later on, so that while she may develop muscles and all, she may pay a price for it. So that I think there is an overemphasis on competitive sports among girls. I, I simply don't see the need for it. I think what we need to do, and I have a very fine man working on it, a book on. Uh, Physical education from a Christian perspective. And this person, who has trained Olympic uh, athletes, does not believe in competitive sports for either boys or girls. He feels they harm a physical education children. And his basic premise is that you develop a program of exercises, not athletics. That will develop for life body of boys and girls in terms of that which is best for them. And then you teach them certain standards of health and of uh, bodily care and the type of exercise they need that is best for them. And he's been very slow at getting this done, but I hope eventually to get him to finish the book. Yes. Uh, could you repeat it? Come up here and. Do uh so I feel that the sex of the administrator is going to determine the extent of problems? No. I don't. It depends on the purpose, a uh, person. They can be just as good disciplinarians, either of them, because in the home they are. Mm-hmm. Well, I think there can be situations like that, but by and large, in the home, you see, the father and mother both have to deal with the problem. Sometimes a particular father or a particular mother will be less uh, strict or less uh, at ease disciplining, but I don't believe that's a sexual issue. Yes. Mm. yes the question is should we have uh, counselors uh, uh, women counselors for the girls and men for the boys I think it could possibly have an advantage I don't think it's a necessity but I can see how there could be advantages in that. Any more about dealing with this before we go on to other types of questions? Yes. Should it be carried right on down to the kindergarten level? I would say, yes, if you're going to have any kind of uh, teaching program in Kindergarten. Because, especially in Kindergarten, the differences are more pronounced. The uh, boys are much slower in uh, developing, and at that early age the difference between boys and girls is very pronounced. The five-year-old girls can uh, talk and think circles around a five-year-old boy. Yes. No. The determinative factor is the home, not the teacher and such things. So the model for the boy and the girl is the father and the mother in the home. It's not the teacher. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, there's a difference uh, between dominion and domineering. So, uh, the first part of your statement uh, it, I, I would uh, differ with, because men are not called upon by God to be domineering, over oh, women. <laughs> but to exercise dominion and remember, and I'm glad I have this opportunity, what Scripture says about dominion and lordship. And our Lord manifested it to be a servant, that you use your authority for the welfare of the family or of the church. And our Lord showed what he meant by our lordship. And he said that the um, Lords among the Gentiles love to domineer, to uh, make people bow down to them. But he said, it shall not be so among you. This is why the idea of having the boys at a very early age uh, learn to hold doors open and that sort of thing is so good. Know that, yes, we do have dominion under God, but the purpose of our dominion is a thoroughly Christian one to manifest grace and courtesy manifest that we do it to serve others so that just as we are told that Christ as the bridegroom of the church gave his life for the church so by analogy the husband is to work to serve the family's welfare and if need be give his life for it you see that's the analogy so we must never confuse the biblical doctrine of dominion with the pagan and sinful versions of it fallen man turns it into a very different thing alright now with regard to uh, the role of women teachers One of the things that is important for all of us to learn, before we can exercise dominion, we must learn how to be under authority. And so I think it's altogether good for a boy to be under authority by men and women. Learn how to be under authority is the best way to exercise authority. So, uh, if he has a woman in high school, what's wrong with that? Yes. Yeah.
1: hmm hmm Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes. Very good question. Uh, how do you correlate uh, Paul's statement with regard to women being keepers at home, and what Saint Paul has, or uh, what the Proverbs has to say concerning the virtuous woman who runs a household while her husband sits in the gate? Now, sitting in the gate doesn't mean he was a lazy rout. That meant he sat on the town council or was a judge. That was a technical term. It meant he held some kind of public office because the biblical doctrine with regard to any kind of legal proceeding was that it had to be in the open. And in those days, they felt that since the weather was uh, usually good, they held it at the city gate, a special place provided in the open, where all trials, council meetings and the like, could be attended by all who came and went. So, here was a case of a woman whose husband was either a councilman or a judge, and she ran the business. It meant a very sizable one. Her husband apparently was an important man and well to do. She handled uh, buying and selling, so her husband obviously had uh, status as an outstanding merchant. She also handled farm and ranch properties, a considerable household, and she's held up as an example of a virtuous women we meet one such woman in paul's epistles so obviously paul didn't object to them do you know who the woman was huh? no yes uh, that's the second example but in this case a married woman uh, we don't know lydia's husband but the store and aqua all right now they we meet in several places so apparently they had business in more than one city and her name is mentioned first meaning that she was the important one in the partnership paul didn't see anything wrong with him. now what does he mean that women should be keepers at home what he's talking against there is being gadabouts and busybodies and neglecting their work to go up and down the neighborhood is gadabats. As a matter of fact, in no other culture have women exercised more uh, authority because they are not regarded as helpless things, but as helpmates, as you might say, prime ministers working with a king. It was only with the 18th century and the Enlightenment that women were suppressed. and the reason for it was, the 18th century said that uh, men represent women. Uh, reason, and uh, reason, reason, therefore, must dominate in a society, and women represent emotions, and emotions must be suppressed. So women were stripped of all legal rights by the end of the 18th century. It happened in this country only in the first quarter of the 19th century. Puritan women exercised a tremendous amount of power. It reached the point where a woman was considered legally the same as a minor child. She had no legal rights. In one or two states, I think in Texas this still may be true, uh, a married woman really has no title to her property. Her husband controls it totally. This was not the biblical pattern. I won't take time to go into the biblical laws with regard to property. So, you see, we must recognize that what Paul was dealing with there was correcting a problem and asking them to stick to their duties at home, not to be get about. I think your question has priority now before we go on to <laughs> Up to a point, competitiveness is very good. I'm not convinced that competitive sports are all that necessary or all that good. I don't think they provide the best answer to a physical education program. Definitely not. But within the classroom, I think we do need competitiveness, but I think we should encourage competitiveness between uh, boys with boys and girls with girls. And I think this then will produce a healthy effect. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes, well, in terms of the non-biblical evidence we have of Hebraic life, you were a man, whether you were 14 or 30, when you supported yourself, not before. Now I applied that in my home. I told my children as long as they were under my roof, no matter how much money they made, I was going to control them and the money they made, and they were going to be men and women only when they were on their own. Uh, That I believe is scriptural. So they're not men, even though they may be eighteen or twenty one or twenty two. Until they are out supporting themselves, we define men not in terms of uh, chronological age, but in terms of governing and supporting oneself. I uh, will continue in 10 minutes) mm-hmm.